If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, I'm the assistant editor at Spiked. And this week we hear from Mesa Gifford on Turkey's attacks on the Kurds. Sean Collins looks at Trump a year on from his inauguration. And Andrew Doyle and Andy Shaw tell me about their new comedy club, which gives two fingers to censorship. Last week, Turkey launched attacks on Kurds in Afrin, a region in Syria. Why? Well, it claimed that Kurdish terrorists were attacking Turkey. This claim was not true. Turkey is continuing to attack this part of Syria, and perhaps not so surprisingly, there hasn't been a great deal of outcry from Western powers. It seems that the US and the UK were perfectly happy with the Kurds when they were winning the fight against ISIS, but won't defend them against these horrific attacks from Turkey. What is going on? Why have we abandoned the Kurds? Well, in order to try and get a handle on this, I spoke to Mesa Gifford, the well-known Brit who has been working and fighting with the Kurds for years. Here's what he had to say. Well, first of all, Mesa, can you start by explaining to us exactly what is happening in Afrin? Well, Afrin is a canton in northwestern Syria. Um, It's actually a very safe space. The the war now, the civil war, has dragged on for a very long time. The Kurds there liberated themselves a long time ago. They have been fighting a lot against al-Nusra and other sort of extremist groups within the FSA as well. But largely, the war has untouched this entire region. And in fact, its population has doubled because of that, because a lot of refugees from other part of the country have fled there. Unfortunately, Turkey, which has uh, always had an agenda in Syria, it's always been funding different groups to bring down the Assad government. It's always tried to interfere to try and limit the, the rise of the YPG. It's got eyes on Afrin now for two reasons. One, it wants to limit the rise of the YPG. It wants to damage them and restrict their ability to sort of move arms and money and to sort of trade with uh, the rest of the country. But more than that, they actually want to connect the region that they took last year uh, with their own proxy forces around Al-Bab and Jeralibus with the other FSA regions uh, south of Afrin. And what that will do is it will create a, a large region where Turkey will have quite a dominant role and will start actually taking a much more serious role generally speaking, across sort of Syrian politics. Turkey is using, as I understand it, several United Nations Security Council resolutions to justify its attack on the Kurds. It's calling them terrorists as part of the justification. I mean, I know also that technically is it the PKK is classed as a terrorist organisation in the UK as well. I mean, how is this able to happen when quite clearly to anyone with half a brain, it is the Kurds who have been winning the fight against the terrorists ISIS for the last few years. Well, absolutely. So the, the, the Kurds themselves, as far as the coalition is concerned, as far as the Americans are concerned, 
do not are not the same as the PKK. And uh, I was actually in Parliament recently uh, talking to the Foreign Affairs Committee about this. Basically, the YPG and the PKK do have some links, but so do the Barzani's, the Iraqi regional governments, the Kurds there. Of course, they also have links with the PKK. Everyone in the region has links with each other. They talk amongst themselves. They, um, they even the Kurds in the uh, in Turkey and in Syria, they have the same ideology. They have the same sort of belief in democratic confederalism. So uh, that in itself shows that there are some links of some sort. But what's really frustrating is that Turkey is conflating very normal links between uh, relevant sort of Kurdish groups and actually uh, saying that Syrian Kurds are actually going to start attacking Turkey, which is just not the case. The Americans know this. The, the British know it as well. In fact, they know and they've seen the Kurds fighting against the Islamic State, liberating territory, both Arabs and Christians, and actually introducing democracy for the first time in the regions that they've liberated. So they are a force for good as far as the rest of the world can, is concerned. But in the eyes of Turkey, it's the complete opposite. More frustratingly is the real reason they, they're so anti-YPG is that they know that if the YPG liberate Kurds in Syria and they have uh, democracy, equality, they can start calling their kids Kurdish names and speak the Kurdish language, then Turks uh, or Kurdish people in Turkey are going to start demanding the same thing. So it's really the desire to repress Kurds in Turkey uh, than anything else, than protecting them. So it's deeply, deeply frustrating. So many people who are protesting across the world in relation to what's happening to Afrin are drawing attention to the fact that uh, Western powers like the US were all for the Kurds when they were kind of doing what they wanted them to do, fighting ISIS, and have now largely turned their back on them when the demand is now more so about Kurdish independence and forming a state and all those things that you just talked about. The US has now pretty much sided with its NATO ally, Turkey, even though, as you've just kind of explained to us, Turkey is doing some really terrible things. A, a lot of things are happening over there that we're not necessarily seeing. So America, it's been growing apart from Turkey for a long time. In fact, uh, it's well known that President Oba uh, Obama had a terrible personal relationship with Erdogan. He just didn't like the guy because Turkey in itself has been on a spiral downwards for a long time now, ever since the uh, failed coup attempt, uh, academia, uh, the Justice Department, everything has, has suffered terrible purges where everyone, just about everyone's lost their job. Tens of thousands of people have been arrested. And the peace treaty with the PKK, uh, with the Kurdish minority, was completely ripped up. And they started uh, sending troops back into uh, the Kurdish regions and, and horribly repressing people again. Uh, hundreds of people have died in the past year alone. And that's very little of that is reported. Turkey is basically lying as well about its real intentions in Afrin. Just as we've been talking that they've sort of declared the YPG a terrorist group, even though they're a, a strong ally of the US and believe in democracy and secular values, they've accused them of terrorism. They've also bizarrely claimed that there's the Islamic State has somehow infiltrated Afrin and that they've also managed to kill Islamic State fighters in, in recent attacks uh, in the past few days, which is completely bizarre because there's no Islamic State fighters at all in the area. And that is just literally a cheap attempt by the Turkish government to really start forcing a false sort of narrative and a sort of fuel almost fake news. What it really is doing is it's dragging attention away from our real enemies, which is the Islamic State. It's weakening our partners on the ground who are genuinely trying to build a federated Syria, a Syria that's actually purely uh, secular, democratic, and has an equal society. And uh, it's only fueling Turkish proxies who are also mainly jihadists.
So I don't think anyone wins from this at all. The Kurds' desire to be a self-determining people and nation yet to be, that is kind of a, a risky and unpopular opinion when it comes to Western's power zone relationship to democracy we've seen within the US and the UK. In terms of Brexit or Trump, democracy is kind of a dangerous word to use in politics in the West. And so do you think that climate is playing into the fear now and the unwillingness to back the Kurds in what they're doing? The, the Kurds themselves, really, they've got their own opinions. There's there actually there's a number of different parties within the Kurdish democracy movements around these four countries that they occupy, where there's Kurdish people. Uh, that's Iran, Turkey, Syria and Iraq. Everyone has their own sort of beliefs on what a future Kurdistan might look like. Now, what's quite refreshing about the Syrian Kurds is they actually believe in a thing called democratic confederalism. So it's an ideology that's uh, that's only about 10 years old that was started by a guy called Abdullah Öcalan, who incidentally is also the founder of the PKK. PKK started off as a Marxist-Leninist group fighting for a nationalistic cause. That has completely changed. Uh, they've completely abandoned communism. They now believe in democratic confederalism, which is basically no longer the idea of a Kurdish nation state, but actually just, uh, I suppose you could call it devolution max, basically, where the Kurds in Turkey have control over their own lives, that there's no more assimilation policies, the Kurdish language is no longer illegal, that they can call their kids Kurdish names. All the horrible repression they've suffered for hundreds of years is completely lifted off them and that they actually have uh, sovereignty over themselves and their future. That's what uh, the PKK is fighting for in Turkey. And that's what these Syrian Kurds, when they rose up against ISIS, that's the ideology they chose because they looked around the Kurdish movements. They looked at sort of the nationalistic cause amongst the Barzani clan in the south, sort of other ideologies. And the one they realized is the most sort of that has the best chance of succeeding is one where they say, we don't want to break away from Syria. We want to remain part of Syria. Uh, we want a Syrian totally on for a Syrian president and all the rest of it, and will contribute uh, taxes to a larger government. But at the end of the day, what we really want is the Kurdish language recognized, our rights recognized, and a simply a secular democratic framework for our people. Uh, and that's it. So it's, it's quite refreshing in that respect. You have yourself been fighting and working with Kurdish forces for years, and you know perhaps better than many people exactly what it's been like why, just to finish, is it so important for people in the West who are watching this unfold to get out and support the Kurds and kind of condemn what's happening in Africa and show them that they do have support outside of Syria? Well, if we look at the whole region, it's a region that's blighted by dictatorship, both nationalistic and theocratic, blighted by war as well because of problems with a lack of democracy, poverty and uh, the rise of extremist groups. Uh, isms of all the bad sort from nationalism to communism to uh, extremism more recently. What's in, very refreshing is that the Kurds themselves, they've suffered horribly as a people. No, no, Very few people on this planet have suffered quite as badly as the Kurds. They're, a, they're the largest ethnic people with their own sort of language and culture that don't have their own country. There's 50 million of them. And because of imperialism, because of Britain and France, a hundred years ago, they cut up the Middle East with straight lines and they divided an entire people amongst four different countries artificially created. Now, those four countries to repress these minorities did the most unspeakable things. They gassed them in Halabja, in, in places in, in, in Iraq. They've hung them in Iran. They've uh, killed them and burnt down their villages in Turkey and in Syria. 
And because of that suffering, the, the Kurds, they've done many different things over the years. They've First, they believed in, as uh, we spoke about earlier, they believed in sort of the, with the PKK's ideology of communism and all the rest of it. They clawed around to try and get a sense of national identity that they would try and fight back and start building a country of their own. But through their suffering over the years, democratic confederalism has emerged. This idea that, okay, we, we don't want independence then. You know, we don't necessarily have to have it. Uh, maybe one day it would be nice if we could vote for it and if you would agree to it. But the least, the least we want is the chance to govern ourselves, the, the chance to speak our own language and have our own uh, people. But that goes actually has a much wider implication because if the rest of the Middle East sees the Kurds creating societies that are secular and democratic, that have feminism as a core component of their ideology, the liberation of women, uh, that will actually hopefully spread this, this sort of renaissance around the Middle East. And actually more people will learn, uh, more people will understand and democracy will grow. That was Mesa Gifford in defence of the Kurds. Now for our next guest. It's been a year since Trump's inauguration. And back then, you might recall that some said a Trump presidency would spell disaster for the US. Has it? Well, not quite. In fact, one of the main criticisms of Trump this last year is that he hasn't managed to do anything at all, let alone single-handedly destroy American politics. Having said that, there is certainly nothing positive to come out of the Trumpian presidency. If he's not tweeting insults to foreign leaders, he's calling predominantly black countries shitholes. Trump is not a good president. Does American politics need to get serious about producing an alternative to the Donald? To discuss this, I called up Spike's US correspondent, Sean Collins. Sean, it's been a year since Trump's inauguration, and back then, critics were predicting a Trump presidency could potentially spell the end of the world. Has he turned out to be the monster he was portrayed as back then? No, I don't think he has. Trump has turned out to be the, the monster or Hitler. You might recall back when, when he, after his inauguration, there are sales of 1984, uh, Orwell's book went went up, and there was a lot of, of panic. And you know, it's continued throughout the year this notion that Trump is a a tyrant. And then the thing is, is that it's not just self styled resistance, but it's also Republicans have been coming out and saying that he is 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 a danger and he's a an authoritarian. I mean, I don't really think that it holds up this this charge. Trump certainly does make authoritarian outbursts, but I think the thing that's been very noticeable is that he hasn't really followed through on them. They tend to be more just things he blurts out. I mean, if you think about all the threats he's made, he's threatened to change the libel laws. He's certainly antagonistic to the media, you know, introduce a, the Muslim travel ban on the campaign. Um, he, he said he was going to investigate voter fraud, which people worried would take people off the voting rolls. He talked about removing people from the Department of Justice. You know, none of these things have come to pass. They could at some time, but, but they haven't. Well, it seems that one of the best criticisms of Trump is that he hasn't actually managed to do really anything at all. Certainly anything he promised in his election campaign hasn't materialised. Trump hasn't really come through on a lot of his campaign promises. Some of the things he has accomplished or been fairly easy to do, I'd say, you know, the selecting a certain uh, Supreme Court judge that conservatives like and signing some executive orders, which presidents are free to do. He really hasn't uh, done much in the legislative area. 
lot of the things that he has proposed, whether it's like the recent tax reform or what he pursued unsuccessfully to overturn Obamacare. Those are really just longstanding traditional Republican issues that were not popular with people, not really on the agenda. So it's it's been ruled more by chaos, by more, you know, about things like Scaramucci or that this guy that was appointed for about 10 minutes as his spokesman or the, you know, the family or the family drama with his sons, his daughter, son-in-law. I mean, it's it's more farcical than anything else. Well, there's certainly not very much that you can say that's good about Trump. One thing that has dogged him is scandal and pretty much always coming from things he says. I mean, most recently he described immigrants from Africa and Haiti as coming from shithole countries. Uh, he's been racist. He's been accused of sexual harassment, though those allegations uh, have not been proven yet. I mean, he, he says ridiculous things in press conferences. I mean, is his kind of behavior, his brash, unpolished, unstatesmanlike behavior actually having a negative effect on US politics, quite serious negative effect, do you think? Yes, I think I think it is. And I think all the discussion around him, you know, this overheated discussion about him being a despot or, you know, that he's in collusion with the Russians, ironically, in a way, meant that he gets a pass a lot of these other things, which are don't rise to tyranny, right? They're not as dramatic as that, but but are still significant. You know, the way I look at it is there's two senses in which his behavior is a problem. One is that it's a problem in and of itself, right? You know, a leader that is meant to represent the country. You know, maybe people don't care that much. They have low expectations of like a president's behavior, but I think we should have certain standards, right? So, I mean, bigotry, expressed by the president or anybody should be denounced, right? It's, it's, it's a bad thing in and of itself. But I think the second thing I would say about the behavior is, is it really does undermine the functioning of a, of a government. And, and here you can see it, you know, a number of times where they've really, the administration has really screwed up because of Trump's tweets or something he said in an offhand way. You know, you just mentioned uh, the sort of shithole comment, which it, it is racist, but it also undermined the, the attempt to reach an, a deal on immigration. So it has had a practical problem as well. It's also been the case that, you know, I mean, it's just really childish, um, the back and forth with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. But it also is, you know, potentially catastrophic if you think about, you know, the potential for war. You know, it's something you just wouldn't normally joke about in this way, in an offhand way, conduct yourself. It's not serious. You know, if anything, if there's something you could potentially panic about, get, you know, might be the North Korea thing, which is kind of funnily enough, people don't really even talk about it that much. Well, finally then, Sean, I mean, it's a year since his inauguration and still people are shouting that he should be impeached. Some people are trying to get him removed from office on the basis of scandal. The opposition to Trump is really lacking, it seems. I mean, what kind of new politics do you want to see to challenge Trump? I mean, first of all, I don't think stable geniuses usually say I'm a stable genius. But, you know, when it comes to to the opposition or most of the critics, I mean, it's, it really, they really overreach, right? So this, all these attempts to try 
really, I mean, and a lot of times they're very transparent about it to try to remove him from office through the Russia investigation, through other issues that have come up. I mean, you know, they accuse Trump of being a danger to democracy, but there's nothing more anti-democratic than to try to remove a, you know, a fairly elected president. When you overreach like that, people start to tune out. They sort of say, he must be doing something right if this is the best they can come up with. It just doesn't ring true. It's not, it's not convincing. I think a more promising approach is to look back at the discussion that happened during the election and the idea that now we need to orient our politics toward the needs of these mass of people that have been, that have been in a way largely ignored. That, to me, it's much more promising to talk about Trump as a phony who can't deliver for people than it is to say that he's somehow so abnormal. That was Sean Collins on Trump. Now for our final guests. Comedy is in danger. We've been writing about this for a while on Spiked. The first casualty of you can't say that culture seems to be jokes. Oversensitive audiences, jeering liberal comedians and censorious venues are waging war on our ability to have a laugh. Jokes have been banned at universities. Comedians have been banned from famous festivals like the Edinburgh Fringe. Shows have been taken off air. People have had to apologise for taking the mick. This all leads me to ask, is this the end of comedy? Well, not quite. A new club set up by Andy Shaw and Andrew Doyle seeks to host a night of unrestrained, all jokes allowed live comedy in London. It's called Comedy Unleashed, and I caught up with a pair outside the BBC in the shadow of a smoking George Orwell to find out why they're fighting for the right to tell all kinds of jokes. So here we are outside the George Orwell statue by the BBC in the heart of London. What a great place to talk. Andy, tell us why you have set up this club. Uh, well, we set the club up uh, because we think that there should be a free-thinking comedy club in London. And we can't find one. So uh, we thought we'd do it for ourselves. What, what we want to do is uh, attract comedians who think differently, who... Uh, like playing with ideas, like exploring new concepts, maybe see the world from a different perspective. And it's very difficult for comedians at the moment to uh, find clubs that uh, don't follow a particular line of thought. Uh, so we thought we'd set one up for ourselves. And we think there's a big market out there. There are lots of people, probably lots of people listening to this podcast uh, who turn the radio on or, or turn the TV on and hear the same old jokes uh, about the same old people. Comedy can also be quite contemptuous, so there, there are lots of jokes. I mean, it used to be jokes about you know chavs and white van men and uh, scousers or Brexit voters or what have you, and now you'll have lots of jokes about you know, the Daily Mail, uh, endless jokes about Trump. So I think people feel quite often that they're the ones that are being laughed at. They're not jokes. Uh, that make them genuinely laugh about other things. So we felt that we needed a club that uh, attracts comedians who are intellectually curious and like to play with ideas, uh, and for an audience uh, that wants to be challenged and wants something fresh and new. Well, Andrew, you are one of these intellectually curious comedians. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about the state of censorship uh, in comedy? Why has it become such a problem, do you think? 
I think partly it's because people have bought into this idea that if you joke about a certain topic, uh, you must therefore be endorsing what, what you're suggesting in your comic persona, which is, is sort of the opposite of how comedy works, really. I mean, jokes aren't literal representations of the truth. Um, they're twisted versions of, of, of some form of truth in order, in order to generate a response. I mean, it's that whole thing of, you know... The chicken. Why did the chicken cross the road? It's not. It's, we're not talking about a real chicken in that situation. So, it's that. that it's a bizarre thing that's happening more and more, where people are taking comedians at face value. Um, in the truth, in truth, I mean, I know a lot of comedians. I know none who are wanting to denigrate or attack minorities or, 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 or the vulnerable in society. I mean, there might be some out there, but, but they, I certainly haven't. They're certainly not the norm. It, it, there should be a level of trust, really, that the comedian knows what they're doing, and and. You know, 99% of the time, it's perfectly clear what, what the intention is. So whenever I see people being offended by jokes, I can see that it's either a sort of willful uh, misrepresentation of what the comedian's trying to achieve for some political aim, um, or it's genuine stupidity, normally. That, that, that's normally what it is, one or the other, which is a, which is a shame, really. So we, we want to just present comics who um, aren't going to worry about that and cultivate audiences that are going to have trust in the comedians and, and what the art form is all about. Mm. That's interesting. Do you think that the main problem with censorship in comedy comes from an oversensitive audience? Or is it that people can't take jokes anymore? Or is it that uh, comedians themselves are starting to self-censor with, you know, in line with the climate of censorship we have in politics and other areas of life? I wonder whether people have, have realised that there's, uh, there's kudos attached to being offended and that there's political clout involved with being offended because it enables you to, to occupy a moral high ground. Which, 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 I mean, this is a kind of a sinister interpretation. I don't know if it is this cynical. I imagine sometimes it is well-intentioned. You know, people, people see jokes and they get upset about it. I saw a tweet the other day, um, a very cute little dog, and um, Skeletor retweeted this, a character called Skeletor, saying that he refers to this as lunch. And um, a, a, a woman <laughs> jumped in saying how upset she was by this tweet, saying, no, I do have a sense of humour, I do, but I, I draw the line at Skeletor, <laughs> suggesting that he wants to eat a puppy. And I thought, well, that's a hilarious tweet in itself, but she doesn't quite see it. And that's the other thing, which I think people should remember. Outrage is always kind of funny when people are upset for whatever reason and, get, uh, and are self-righteous, even if it's justified, actually. It's funny. And, um, and, you know, we should be able to probe those areas. Mm. Uh, Andy, I mean, that's sort of similar question. Do you think that people are sort of longing for the right to laugh now? Do you think it's almost like people are asking for permission to laugh because you have such a backlash when you laugh at something that is supposedly offensive or, to, you know, not PC and not in line with what is accepted in kind of polite comedy circles? I think we all need it. I think we, we all need a really, really good laugh. Uh, and it's really difficult to find it. I, you know, I, I have much more fun chatting with mates uh, and making jokes about stuff than I do from professional comedians who spend their entire lives uh, trying to make jokes. It, it seems like a lot of comedy is mainstream news just with an added punchline uh, or an added wisecrack and there's no real thinking around it. I, I think people are desperate for uh, new comedy and I think people find stuff around them funny you know the absurdities and the nuances and the paradoxes of everyday life is what makes life worth living you began by talking about the fact that there's only sort of certain types of jokes allowed now and they get directed at daily mail readers and i mean we're outside the bbc lots of the comedy sketches that are used on this for example radio 4 tend to be of a polit certain political bent and they tend to be a certain type of jokes. Do you think that there is an elitism in comedy today? Well, I, I think there's a bit of a closing of the mind. And artistic creativity is all about freedom. 
so that's something that we really want to um, nurture at the club is this sense of free thinking comedy that anything goes if it's funny it's funny and the audience is the judge the question about elitism is I don't think people see themselves as elitists so you know, exi- lots of existing comedians on the comedy circuit especially comedians who are doing well would you know, shudder if they described as elitist but I think they tend to talk to themselves and they tend to uh, sh- validate their own views with their peers and they don't actually get out into the real world so it's very easy to get into a group think uh, and not be able to see things from other people's perspectives and one of the things we really want to do in the club is have an absolute plurality of opinion bring in all sorts of perspectives um, from all sorts of points of views and, and very much get away from this this elitism at, at the end of the day the, the real judge in this is is going to be the audience and if it's funny it's funny okay so andrew this all sounds really great tell us where we can come and see you comedy unleashed will be on every second tuesday of the month so we're starting on february the 13th and the next one after that is march the 13th and we've got a wide range of comics we've got people like scott capuro shazia mirza will franken jeff norcott uh, david mills a huge range of people it's really worth uh, coming along listening to the spike podcast to get your daily dose of spiked opinion head to spiked-online.com subscribe to our podcast feed and if you'd like to help spike to continue to thrive please be sure to make a donation thanks for listening